This is the Commercial Property Show, Australia. Show number 13. fisherman's on the side of the river and he's out there fishing and he's hoping that a fish is going to go by the grizzly bear walks out to the middle of the river sits on a waterfall plumps down and fish jump into his mouth the difference between the grizzly bear and the fish is that the grizzly bear is in the path of opportunity that's a large part of my strategy welcome back thanks for joining me on this week's episode of the commercial property show i'm your host andrew bean And in today's show, AJ Osborne shares his truly inspiring story and how he used passive income from self-storage to overcome huge adversity in his life. He explains the exact business model he used to amass over a hundred million in self-storage assets. He shares how he identifies money left on the table with his five key operational elements that he looks for in a deal. He has even written a step-by-step playbook that explains how you can do this too, and you can find the link in the show notes. Now, a quick message from my company, Develop a Life. At Develop a Life, we want to help you unlock your financial freedom. If you have a big backyard that's getting too hard to maintain and you want to downsize without the trouble of moving, we offer a subdivision service to New South Wales residents. We manage the entire subdivision and sale of the land for you. There could literally be hundreds of thousands of dollars waiting to be unlocked right in your own backyard. Head over to our website to request a free subdivision assessment today. That's www.developalife.com.au My next guest is a best-selling author and king of American self-storage. It's AJ Osborne. How are you, mate? Doing great. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fantastic, buddy. Thanks so much for being on the show. I'm really pumped to have you on. So, mate, can you give the listeners a brief overview of who you are and what your portfolio looks like at the moment? Absolutely. So, you know, as you mentioned, I'm AJ Osborne. I live in the state of Idaho. And so, no, that's not in the Midwest. It's not Iowa. We are located right in the Rocky Mountains, the Northern Rockies. So Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. And so I kind of grew up in a rural state, in a rural place. I did selling and insurance in my state and uh, uh, was looking for ways to expand and kind of grow things. So we got we got into self-storage as I was trying to diversify my income from my time and our portfolio now it's been a great ride but our portfolio now encompasses over a million square feet so over 100 million in assets and we are across the northwest washington oregon nevada idaho kansas so the midwest and we are going into Iowa just to confuse people where I'm from uh, right now. So uh, we got, you know, we do a lot in self storage. So we do turnaround, we buy, we update, 
we refinance and we keep going. We also do ground up, we develop, we do conversions. So we buy old bankrupt retail and turn them into storage facilities and also office space. So that's a new thing. We're reconverting and redoing office space buildings. And we focus on operations. We focus on value add. We, we focus on finding the money on the table and how we identify and underwrite those assets and then uh, reposition them in the marketplace. And that has you know, given us a, a lot of success. We've been very fortunate. Well, wow, so you, you sound very, very busy. So let's go back to the start. What year did you first buy your first facility? So we were buying small facilities in the early 2000s, so before the crisis, before 08. And so we started out in really rural places. So our first facility was uh, that we did together. We had a couple small facilities, but me and my partner and my dad we did it together in Bonners Ferry, Idaho. It's a little city up in in the mountains. There's more grizzly bears there than there are people. And <laughs> it was, you know, it was a learning Thing. And we liked a lot of parts about the asset class, but really as we owned it and as we learned more, we found the really mechanics to increase revenue, i.e. therefore increasing valuation and uh, how to turn these facilities in and make them more money. And as we did this, we learned more value points. And so then we started going to, after we bought smaller small facilities around in some rural areas. Then we started looking at larger markets and identifying the markets that are the best and then finding the underperforming facilities in those markets and turning them around. And this was all going on through, you know, early 2000 through the crisis. And then after the crisis, we said, you know, let's get into this in a much bigger way. And right around 2010, we started to buy a lot more and we started to buy bigger ones and uh, turning them around. And we just kind of kept scaling till now. We have th- right now we have three facilities under contract and we're still growing. Yeah, wow. Sounds like you've gone through a whole kind of process there of learning, you know, what to do, what not to do, and then how to actually really add value to these things. So that first deal, what did that actually look like with price points and cap rates and things like that? Yeah, so our first deals when we were going into them, we didn't really know a lot. We weren't real estate people, right? So it was on a main road. It was small. It was, uh, I think we paid 600000 for the deal. We put down 200000 I think, right about 200000 And there was no office, nothing like that. It was dirt roads and some units, right? And we cleaned it up and, you know, we, we didn't really put CapEx into it. And we kind of let it cash flow. When we sold it, we actually sold it for less than we bought it. So it's an interesting one for me to start off in my experience. But I think we found, we're like, wow, this could be a thing, right? This could be a lot better. And I think we identified some of the things that didn't work in that area, but they were small deals, under a million. All our deals, when we started out, were under a million dollars. And we used our savings and the money from our sales jobs and brokeraging and insurance to put into those deals. And then after that, so we took that deal. to give me, Let me give you a little example of the power that this had. So we took that deal. We immediately turned that 200000 into another facility in a bigger market that was a little more under market valuation, right? So we took that. We put it into that facility. And within a year, we turned around, or less than a year, we turned around and sold that one for a million more than we bought it for. We took that million 
and we rolled that into a four million dollar facility wow. um, in another market. And that facility we we've kept, but we've expanded and grown it. And that facility is worth somewhere between eight to ten million today. And so you know we took our original small facility. And we rolled it up into, you know, our two hundred thousand dollars into four million in equity. We cash flow more than we even started on with that <laughs> two hundred thousand. So, um, you know, it turned out really good. And we took that and that experience, and we used it in other assets. And then we started buying bigger ones. And the fundamentals deal stayed the same, right? How we did it and what we did never changed. So the the process was very repeatable and scalable. And uh, as we grew, we started adding on staff and we started developing policies and procedures, adding technology and kind of got better and better and better along the way. So we caught the bug for sure. I love the way you invest because it's a lot more like a business and you're really focusing on actually improving the operations of the asset in a hands-on way. And that's just really, really awesome. So Yeah, like, we what- focus 100%. You know, for me, I don't believe... Uh, self-storage is a real estate asset class. It is a business. And I believe that any real estate investor that has success, they're not operating, they're not buying real estate, they're operating businesses. And that distinction always separates really successful real estate investors from others. And we focus on policies and procedures, operations, levers that we can control, not things that we can't. So I don't expect, you know, the economy to rise and that to make me rich. That's not at all how we even invest or what we go into it. We look at what the money that's sitting on the table. So that's the money that the sellers are missing out on that's right there and I can buy it and I can capitalize on improving that business and therefore capitalizing on the money that was there for the, the taking, they just weren't doing it. And that's how we estimate how much money we're gonna make our return. The economy improving and all that, that's great. That's a cherry on top. But we don't invest in the thought that, oh, in 10 years, this will be worth more. And we that's not how we operate. Yeah, that's great. There's absolutely no guesswork to it. So, mate, you had a major setback with your health at one point. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I, I tell people self-storage saved my family's financial life. So at the time I was starting my real estate journey, we were trying to diversify from sales income, which was very much a treadmill. I was working for one of the top, the largest benefits, health benefits brokerage firms at the time. I was running their offices here in Boise, Idaho. We were diversifying out into storage. Both were going very good. It was a very good year. Both were growing, things were getting better, and life was good. And we were traveling around, and as we were going, and I was staying busy, and we are traveling around, hopping around, I started to get a little under the weather. It started not feeling so good. And you know, before I knew it, I was at home, we were going to the hospital, throwing up in the parking lot, and they're coming in to get a test. They're like, listen, you're perfectly healthy. There's nothing wrong with you. And I'm like, that's weird, because I feel like something's wrong. And so I went home and my wife put the kids to bed and I went and got in the bathtub to soak because I was in so much pain and I couldn't get out of the bathtub. So when I went to get out, I couldn't walk. And my wife drugged me out, took me to the hospital. And within days, I was completely paralyzed. They put me into a coma and they put me on a ventilator and hooked me up to tubes to keep me alive. And then I, when I woke up out of that coma, which was very short, it was a medical-induced coma, um, 
but whatever that was a couple of days when I woke up, I was paralyzed from the eyes down. And wow. so I was a complete quadriplegic at that point. And I stayed like that for over 10 weeks and I was in the hospital for three, four months. And when I got out of, I, they bounced me around long-term care facilities to rehabilitation centers. I had to relearn how to walk, use my hands, eat, I, you know, all that. And then as I, when I went home, I went home paralyzed. I went home in a wheelchair and they put me in bed and my wife took care of me and three kids, but I was let go in the hospital. My boss came and informed me while I was paralyzed in a hospital that I had no job, which wasn't their fault, right? They're running a business. But it was obvious I was no longer working and I was no longer employable. And, you know, when I look at this, for me, it seemed like an eternity, right? It, you know, it was, I went in when it was warm. When I left, it was the middle of winter after Christmas. I missed all the holidays with my kids, everything else. And then when I went home, I stayed in a bed until it was summer again. And then I was trying to learn how to walk. I had leg braces. I had to have things to help me. Um, and it hurt to do everything. I had severe, severe nerve damage. Um, and I had to crawl my way back. And you know, we were lucky enough to where we had this passive income coming in. So when I, you know, as I'm learning to walk, as I'm recovering, my assets kept making money. In fact, they were worth more and made more money than when I'd gone into the hospital. Wow. And that kept us going. My wife didn't have to sell the house. We didn't have to, she didn't have to get a job and leave me at home paralyzed with the kids. It was, uh, it really is not even, I can't even state how beneficial it was. And then since I didn't have a job, when I got out, I started multiple other companies, started investing at large, and I've never gone back to get a job. And I'm now on do my own thing. And it turned out to be a wonderful blessing for me and my family. It, it changed our perspective and the way we view life. I'm not fully back. I can't run. I can't jump. I did get out of my leg braces. I have to wear them from time to time if I'm going to be on uneven ground or things like that. My lower extremities are still struggling. They haven't come all the way back. But you know what? Life's amazing. I have nothing to complain about. I got to all of a sudden really identify things that were important to me. And I got to identify targets and goals and things that I wanted to achieve because I'd been given a second chance. And I knew that with the second chance, I'm doing 100%. I'm going all out. I'm going to create legacy. I'm going to, you know, sky's the limit. And I took that attitude going out of it. And, uh, and, you know, me and my wife, we're trying to accomplish that. We don't accept anything that we don't want anymore. <laughs> we have zero tolerance. <laughs> we, did, we didn't like the school system. So started our own private school and that's exploded. We are building a high school where anything that came and any problem that we had, it was just, we're going to do it. We're going to fix it and take care of it. We're not going to accept whatever is being presented. It's life is too short. And things are too valuable to just accept the status quo. So we stopped. And anything that I thought or wanted to do, instead of just thinking or dreaming or wanting, I just did. And that's kind of our mode of operation today. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's really inspirational. Congratulations on your recovery. That's really, really Thank you. cool. Thank you. So when you were purchasing yourself storage, obviously you were somewhat financially free when you had your health incident. Were you aware that you were kind of had that in the background as an insurance policy or was it just like, oh, wow? Yeah, no, no, it was. It was intentional okay. as all things in life are because I was – my sales income 
I was contracted out. I was a middleman between companies and the insurance company. Well, I learned very quickly. I had a business deal that went south, and it was totally my fault. We got it was fraud, and we got screwed. And I found out I don't own this line of revenue. So these clients, they move on, they do different things, and every time that you lose a client or have to start again or whatever it is, you have to get back up and you have to go after and find it. It wasn't a long-term solution, and it truly was a treadmill that I was just running as fast as I could on. And I started to feel like I'm not going anywhere, right? I'm getting up, I'm doing the same thing, and I'm just not moving forward. And I thought, if something happens, we're in trouble because... If I can't get up and run at full speed, I don't feed my family. And we knew that had to change. And so me and my father, we set a plan to build a real estate company. And my brother-in-law joined us. And we, together, we went out and we, we tried to build this thing up and make it what it could. But it was very intentional. It was, we have to change something before it's too late. Little did I know, I thought that was, you know, decades away. It was not, it was, it, it was years away and not very long at all. So. Yeah, that's great. With your first assets, were you ever on the floor managing these assets or did you hire staff from the very beginning? So we had certain part-time staff where we'd contract out with like a local company, but we were managing them. We went and started and we're like, ah, oh, we don't want to do this. We don't want to manage it. So we hired a third-party manager to do run our assets. And within a year, we're like, they're doing a horrible job. Yeah. Our assets aren't performing. So we fired them. And since we didn't really have any other options, we're like, hey, we're going to do this. And then we jumped all into the managing. And then uh, we did that. And as we grew, we hired people on and we trained them and we documented everything that we did so that we could hire people on and show them how to do uh, what we were doing and we could scale. And that's really important. And once again, you know, the obstacle truly is the way. I don't know that we ever wanted to manage, but we were kind of in a position where we had to. But that through that process, through the doing, through being on the ground, that's what taught us where the value was, right? If yeah. we had given it to somebody else, we wouldn't have known where to find value. And out too, we wouldn't have known how to extract it. And so the difference of us getting down and dirty and doing all the things that we had to do to run it, to manage it, to take calls and emails, all that kind of stuff, that showed us how to move forward and where to go. So it became invaluable and we documented those things and we said what's working and what's not and we changed things and then now it allowed us to have a, a platform to where we can scale and be much bigger than just having a few assets that are passively you know flowing which too right now i mean i don't do anything day to day anymore so i don't deal with tenants which we have over eight thousand. Wow. i don't deal with anything like that anymore. I focus on my job is I focus on high impact activities. So my time needs to be spent on doing things that will fundamentally take our organization to the next level. And so I need to work on my business, not in my business. Now, yeah. working in my business is what showed me how to build and how to grow. So I feel like I'm in phase two, right? And then phase three will be, you know, huge and that's the big next level which i'm trying to achieve now and i feel like i'm on that next phase but phase one doing everything right <laughs> having all that crap yeah. and 
did all that. That taught us and we recorded, we created systems, we hired people to execute the systems, and then we could get out of the managing the day-to-day. And now I can work on opportunities, expanding and growing our empire. So would you say the things that you focus on are the things that you really can't hire out to people? It's really stuff that only you can do. 100%. No, but nobody can do what, what there's no one to do it. I'm out there building relationships and connections. I look at the activities that I do need to pay off in the form of millions. And those activities, once you get to a certain level, those are uniquely designed to the person who created the person who's doing, right? So in order to create those opportunities, you can't hire someone to do that role because those opportunities don't flow that way. And so when I look at it and when I'm doing everything from you know this podcast, I'm out there and I'm talking and making connections with brokers to make off-market deals. When I'm, you know, all of these different types of activities, a lot of it, I don't see any short-term results, none, right? Yeah. But these are what happens over the months. All of a sudden, we start getting huge deals. We build relationships to start executing. So, And then I have to make anything that involves the framework of our business that would fundamentally affect it, I deal with that. So in order to change the framework that our business operates on, I have to make all those decisions. And so employees can work within a set of execution, but over a certain point that would change the way we do business or how our business operates, I'm always involved in those things. Yes, it's kind of like you're just planting seeds and the compound effect on that can have massive effect later on. Yeah, and, and, and two, it's building out. It's like adding on to your house, right? It's like the contractor, you can hire them and they can come in, but they need you to tell them what you want. And if you don't, I don't know what to do. And so when when I'm looking at our business, we just started a an investment side of our company. So for the first time ever, me and my partners are going to allow investors to come in. We've never done this before. I had to start thinking of all sorts of new things like, you know, how's this going to work and how do we operate? What deals? What's the structure? I, I needed to learn. This is a total new side of our business. I could never hire an employee to build this out, right? They're going to go, well, I don't know. Yeah. What do you want? How do you want it to look? What is it? So I have to build a framework for this whole new part of our business that we have to build because it's in line with our long-term goals to take us to the next level. And so I'm connecting those dots based upon the vision that we create. And then I'm building the framework. And as I'm doing all the upfront work, I'm hiring people behind the contractors to come in and start building and executing. So we just hired on an investor relation person that's starting next week. We've hired on uh, some other people to come in to help me out, you know, do on this execution part. And we had to get, we had to get out there. We had to let people know what our mode of operation is. And we had to do it. So then I started writing a book and I started saying, listen, how do I explain to investors then I wrote a book and it came out. And so it all this was involved in taking our business to the next step, right? The next level, which is a big jump, right? So we're at 100 million in assets. I'm like, how do we get to 500 million in five years, right? Well, that could only be done at that growth and rate of speed if we had partners to come in alongside with us. And so once we knew that, then we said, now how do we execute in a way that's comfortable, that fits with our format of doing business? This takes a while to figure out. I went to masterminds, I went and talked to tons of very knowledgeable people, and I started building this framework out, and I started saying, we need to do this, this, and this, and this. Then I started creating timeframes to execute, but that front work, that's me, right? That's the creation process. Yeah, that's awesome. 
You had a Kmart deal. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. So the Kmart deal, we have uh, two more that we're in the middle of right now. And it's very similar as an office building that we bought, is, which is another one we're doing. And this is a conversion process. This is, I've loved this process because it just intrigues me. So I'm always looking at doing things bigger, which really just means that will expand my knowledge and will allow me to grow. I'm really big on progress. And I'm really like, what's going to take me as a person to the next level, both my capabilities and knowledge. And what this is, is you're converting an asset type into a different asset type. And at first it sounds like, oh, you're converting, you just buy a bankruptcy for Kmart and you put a storage facility in it, right? Well, it's actually not that simple at all. Because one of the things you have is these assets are traded on the perceived value, which commercial assets are derived from a cap rate, which is the income that the asset can make right? And the return you're going to get. Well, if you have a Kmart and you can get somebody in there that's going to pay you, you know, $3 million a year, then you're going to have a valuation of 15 million, right? Or whatever that number is. And so that's the expectations of the seller. They're saying, ah, well, Walmart will pay me this. Kmart will pay me this. Sears will pay me this. And you have to have the conversations with these owners and say, yes, that, that was true. But now nobody will pay you anything for this because those companies don't even really exist. They're gone. And no one is coming to fill a 160,000 square foot box. No one. And so these owners are sitting on this for years and they have to figure out what is the value of this, right? Like how does this work? So for us to come in and buy it, which we have to buy it at a fraction of that, Right. So we have owners that are starting out at 18 million and we're buying at you know, five. That's wow. a huge drop. Yeah. And you have they have to walk through and they have to you have to bring them to the table to show them the revenue associated with your model is gone. We need to readjust the framework of evaluating these assets. And then what I have to look at how much do I have to purchase it for? The building already exists, which a lot of people say that's a good thing. It can be. But it can also be a horrible thing because there may be things that are – we had to repair a roof. That cost a million dollars just to repair the roof. And with our building, we had to blow out and create dry aisles. So there's a road running through the middle of our business with parking spaces. We had to create exhaust systems running down the middle. We have multiple exits, entry points. So we had to change the way it worked and how traffic entered and exit, and that adds up, and that can add up quickly. And a lot of people can get really over their skis where they're like, man, I got into this and I didn't realize all these other costs because a normal build is what's the land cost and what is the square foot cost to build? And then those numbers, what can I make off of it? And that tells you whether you want to do the deal or not. So there's, I have the building cost, right? Where I know that, okay, I need to build these storage units uh, inside it. Now I may have outside stuff. Now I have entrance access and you got to start so unique to the individual location. You got to put it from scratch. So no builder is going to come in and say, this is exactly how much it is. So there's this underwriting process that is unique with them. I like it. It's exciting. I, I got to make a deal with the owners, right? I got to come up to a valuation that works for me. I got to, you know, you got to do all these other things. If it works, it can work really well. This one we did for 7 million. We refinanced at 18 million a year and a half later, and we could probably sell it for 25 million. So 
that's in a year and a half. So this one really worked well, and some of them can. Now, I know other ones that don't work well. Um, it was poorly planned, poorly executed. Um, but there are unique opportunities, particularly in location, and that's why I like them. Cities also don't know what to do with these things, right? So this retail apocalypse that is just waving going over the world, in particular the United States, is dumping mass assets onto the market that nobody wants, and they're getting run down. And this is a lot of land. You're talking 15 acres and multi-million dollar buildings that people literally don't know what to do with. And so the city, the cities are terrified of these things. They're terrified because they go, this is going to increase crime. This is a complete sore eye. And normally these are in some of the best locations, yet nobody wants them. So the city doesn't know what to do with them. So then we got to go work with the city. Now I got to convince why you want a storage facility in this prime real estate, which is a sell, right? You got to sell that because cities don't like storage facilities because they don't pay a lot of taxes and yet they take up a lot of space. And so really the sell is today. It's listen, it's that or you're going to have a dump here that is just going to be a haven of crime and drugs and things and people breaking into it and cause you, your city problems. The residents are going to hate it. And as of right now, you're basically getting no taxes from it, period. And so it's like, what else are you going to do? Right. But you can't just sell that. They don't like that. So then we got to work with them and we got to find out the needs of the city and what we can do to help them out. And you got to put it all together and it's got to all work out right. So it's a different animal, but it's fun. You said you had two other Kmart deals as well. Are you refurbishing those into self-storage or are you planning to refurbish those into office space like you said? So actually the office space is an office space building that went bankrupt. We're turning the office space into a storage facility and also going to have office on the top of it. So the Kmarts, we are turning into uh, self-storage and multifamily. So the excess space on it, the parking, everything, we're developing into multifamily and we are keeping the storage or the Kmart and turning it into self-storage. Okay. So for the Australian listeners, multifamily is apartment buildings in Australia. Now, a quick break to hear from one of our show affiliates. Are you sick of being tied down to a job you hate? Wouldn't you like to choose if and when you want to work? Cash flow from commercial property is one of the best ways to replace your income and wave bye-bye to that day job. It's not unusual to receive 50 to 100 to even $200,000 of net income from one commercial property. Imagine not having to work, but you still get that paycheck each month. I'm taking steps to make this a reality for me and my family. Like me, the first step you need to take is investing in knowledge. James Dawson's Commercial Property Cashflow Blueprint is the number one online course on the subject in Australia. If you want to take your commercial investing to the next level, do what I did and invest in yourself first. Go to www.jamesdawsoncommercial.com.au forward slash CPS to check out his free webinar and you can find the affiliate link in the show notes. So 
mate, what's the opportunity that you see in self-storage presently and in the future? Oh, man. Self-storage. Okay. I believe, and I'll explain this. I'll explain why. But I really do believe that self-storage offers more opportunity for someone in commercial real estate than any other asset class. The reason being is it's so new. The vast majority of facilities that have been built were built a while ago, right? In an old business model, the industry is changing rapidly. And two, the vast majority of self-storage is owned by single operators. So when you're looking at multifamily, any other commercial, excuse me, apartments, when you're looking at office space, when you're looking at retail, um, hotels, this is all owned by institutions, right? So 80% of all those assets are owned by institutions. They're owned by money managers. They're owned by you know, banks. They're owned by all these other things, right? Self-storage is not like that. In fact, it's the inverse. Over 70% of all storage facilities are just owned by mom and pops, single owners, right? So the for me, the opportunity is this market's consolidating just like apartments did, just like retail did, just like office space did, right? But you're on the, the middle ground. So it's not new enough to where it's in its infancy and there's like a lot of risk, right? It's a teenager, but it's growing up. And over the next 15 years, it will consolidate and it will match these other real estate asset classes. So for me, the next 15 years, it's this is the asset to be in. It's This is the asset that will expand and you'll have opportunities to buy. I didn't know how to compete in apartment buildings. I was competing against guys that had hundreds of millions of dollars. I'm like, how do I compete with that? What can I offer these people that can't? And I know there are ways you can do it and people do it all the time. They're very successful at investing in apartments, even when they're not institutions. I just didn't know how. And so I just kind of went to an asset class where I feel that I could compete and I could do very well in it and I could adapt technologies so I could operate at a level that the mom and pops couldn't. So there was this delta between their operations and what I could do. So I'm not going out into the marketplace and I'm not buying storage facilities from institutions that are just operating it amazingly, right? No, I'm buying it from a mom and pop that's not hardly operating it at all. And then I can operate it really good and the spread is huge for me. So opportunity and scalability are things that I love about the asset class. Now, there's not nearly as many of them as apartment buildings, but there's more storage facilities than there are Starbucks, McDonald's, and a bunch of other things combined. So they're everywhere, and people are building them everywhere. Now, that's the downside. So the one thing I hate about storage, I hate it. It's horrible, it's terrible, and it's not a perfect investment because there is none. It is self-storage. I know that's weird, but self-storage <laughs> is self-storage's number one enemy. So self-storage is way more exposed to being overbuilt than apartment buildings, right? So people will build a lot more self-storage. I think there's lower barriers of entry. Now, with that said, the markets recorrect very quickly. And as long as I avoid that, I'm good, which I can tell if a market's overbuilt or not very quickly. That's not hard for me to do. And so how has the technology, the upgrades in technology changed the operation now? So this is the other thing that I love about self-storage. Self-storage is, you know, it comes out of a junkyard industry. This, this is an industry that when I started, I didn't tell people I invested in storage. 
because <laughs> people would look at you and kind of go, why? Right? It's like, yeah. you know, why do you do that? Banks look at it and they're like, well, I guess maybe we could loan you, but we don't really want to. It was it was an asset class nobody wanted. And because of that, too, nobody put money into storage. Very few did. And storage was lagging. I mean, the internet, you're at conferences in 2015, and they're talking about people about why they should have a website. And you're like, really? I mean, that whole thing was happening in the late 90s for business. You know, so they're way, they were way far behind. So we were buying facilities. Their entire marketing strategy was they were paying $10,000 a year to put their name in yellow pages which at the time I didn't even know existed. I thought Yellow Pages was already dead. Yeah. And that's how they were doing it. So it was like, well, and two, all they did is we want to fill up. Nothing more. We fill up, we put our name in Yellow Pages, and that's it. And so it was, there was just nothing going into it. There was no, it was, the, the mode was buy as cheap as you can, put up units. Then in the future, when the land's worth a lot more, we'll turn it into apartment buildings or something. And then in the future happened and their storage facility ended up being really valuable. It was recession resistant. And then after 2008, when everybody was losing money and all these other asset classes and real estate was just in the tank, storage was doing great. And everybody said, whoa, hold on. What's happening over here? This stupid asset class that we've all been shunning now is outperforming everything. And then Wall Street jumped in. Then private equity jumped in. Then everybody started to jump in the bandwagon. So when I started, 86% or more, it was probably about 92, 93% were all owned by single operators, mom and pops. Today, it's at 73%. That's rapid consolidation. And so it's now changing, but that didn't really start to happen in a big way until after 2008. So with uh, self-storage actually getting loans on these types of properties, I'm assuming that the, they're kind of the leases are month to month. Do you ever find yes. it hard to get money from a bank because there's no long-term lease in place? Not at all. Not anymore. Back when the CMBS markets shut down in the United States, they shut down, but they still wanted storage. We had banks calling us saying, We're, we want more storage because they were worried about the performance in the economy. And they knew that storage was a great hedge. So actually, we have more money flowing to us than we've ever had. And if you took the first of the year, we could have always, always gotten money for storage. But we didn't have people calling us. We didn't have people wanting it, right? In the last three months, it's like, listen, I don't know how to deploy all that money. I can't tell you how many times I've told people that. I'm like, that's great, but I can't deploy $50 million in a year. <laughs> and so I'm like, I, I wish I could, right? And so, and then because of that, I started a wholesale company. And because, so I, I'm like, okay, well, we got this, we got to do something about it. So we started creating ways to supply and take on investors and then banks. But I, we've never, ever had an issue financing a self storage facility. Where you have issues financing self storage is when you're just starting. I think this is true to all asset classes, though, right? If you go to a bank and you say, I want to finance, an apartment building or a self-storage facility, they'll probably lean more to the apartment building for a beginner because they have the long-term lease, right? But still, if you're a beginner, the bank's going to look at you and say, why should I give you the money? Mm. Because there's lots of people that can do this, right? And the bank, 
the vast majority of the risk is concentrated around the operator, not the asset. And so when you start out and you have no experience in self-storage and you go to a bank and you want a loan, they're going to be a little more nervous, right? Unless you have a ton of money. And so what I always like to say is if you don't, what you need to do is you need to partner up and you can find people that will just sign on the bank note for you that have experience. You give them a cut of the deal and then they can get anything you want, right? I mean, we went to last one we funded, we went to 21 banks and they were all fighting over our deal. Not hard to fund, non-recourse. So as long as you have a good partner, a good operator, you can overcome that very easily. I, I That's just not really an issue in today. And I like to say when you're dealing in real estate, money's the last thing. That's the least, most least valuable thing, generally speaking, in real estate. The number one thing is experience. So if you don't have experience, then yeah, the money's gonna be hard, right? So just partner up with somebody that does, figure that out, that's an easy thing to overcome. Yeah, some really good advice there. What's your criteria that you look for now when you're looking for a deal or when a deal comes across your desk? So self-storage is hyper-local, like hyper-local. Like your three-mile radius makes you or breaks you. I think that's extended more out to a five- or ten-mile radius, but really it's the three-mile. With that said, I'm looking – as far as demographics and stuff go, I actually really don't care much. I look at a market that's growing, but I don't need it to be exploding by any means. In fact, that causes overbuilt problems. If you look at what's going on in Texas and other parts of the world and those markets, inventory is coming on at mass. I'm looking for growth, income, and population. Other than that, I want over 50,000 people in that market, and that's about all that I really focus on in the market. What I really focus on is demand. That's 100%. So deals that make it or break it simply come down to demand for me. So I need a after demand's good, then I'm looking for an asset on a good street, good visibility. That's the one thing I can't change. And then I'm at a point where I want 60 plus thousand square feet. And that's my acquisition target right there. Okay, so how do you actually figure out the demand? Is it just you try and get some storage in the area and you actually realize that you can't really get any storage? Like how do you figure that out? Yeah, so demand for storage units, there's a lot of people that try to build a base. Like they'll say anything over 10 square feet is too much, 10 square feet per capita. I don't – that's not really true. Markets can have – I've seen markets that have eight square feet per capita and there's not a lot of demand. And I've seen markets that have 20 square feet per capita and there's lots of demand. So what I'm looking for is I'm looking for the inventory on the market, first of all, and then I'm trying to qualify it. Now, as a general rule, yes, if there's 20 square feet of storage on the market, I better really understand that market. That's a ton of storage. You got to realize only only 10% or less of the population utilizes storage. So you got to be careful. Now, What I'm really looking at, though, is how that occupancy or that square foot that's on the market is being utilized, right? So are these all full? Are these all, you know, I went into a market and went around and talked to the facilities, which that's what we do, we secret shop, and I'm talking to them and I'm like, hey, can I get on a waiting list? And they're like, I'm not putting you on a waiting list because I'm never going to call you. And I'm like, oh, really? They're like, yeah, we've been full forever and we're never not going to be full, right? As opposed to going around and seeing storage facilities and like, yeah, I got whatever you want. What do you want? 10 by 20, 5 by 5, 10 by 10, anything you want, we got it. That's a bad sign. 
That means that people aren't buying them up. There's there's not a lot of demand. So I'm looking at the utilization and then the pricing. Are they increasing pricing or are they dropping rates? And you can use there's I use a company called Radius Plus, but all these companies that aggregate this data, they're only part of the picture. You really got to do your homework, as in you really got to start getting on the phone and calling. You got to understand the quality of the product that's being offered and if it's full or not. And if they're not, you got to ask yourself why. And generally speaking, I don't really care why. If all the facilities aren't full, there's just no demand. And so I stay away from the market. And then I'm looking at why they're full. So if they're all full, why is this going to continue? And I'm really hyper worried about what I call zombie supply. Zombie supply is supply that's there. You just don't know it's there. Now, this happens for a few reasons. So a classic example of this was in Texas when the REITs were reporting we are 92% occupied. Well, the REITs and how they report to Wall Street, they don't have to report facilities that aren't stabilized. So they had all these facilities that were 50% occupied, but they didn't have to report it because they weren't stabilized yet. So it all of a sudden acted like that inventory wasn't even there. It didn't exist, which was wrong. It did. And two, there's the projects and the work of facilities that are currently being built. If you're in a town of 60,000 people and you have two storage facilities being built, that is going to dramatically change your supply and demand for that market. And so you need to know what's in the works. If you bought, bought a storage facility in that market and all of a sudden you find out that there's three storage facilities being built, your first year, you might end up lowering your rates. So I'm looking at not just the current supply. I'm looking at what else is on the market, what's coming on the market, what's in the pipeline, or what even could be. So I'm looking at areas that are zoned for self-storage. And does the city like self-storage? I'm calling planning and zoning, and I'm asking, you know, saying, hey, where's this at? Do you like it? Do you not? And they say, yeah, we don't care. You can build storage anywhere. Or they say, we hate storage. You're not getting approved in our city. Those are good things, right? So by stabilized, do you mean a completed build? Yeah, so normally there's a three-year stabilization on assets. So if you build it, it's not stabilized until whatever time they call it or occupancy they call it. So if you say stabilization's at 80%, I build it, and it takes you four years to get to 80%, it's not stabilized until you hit that number. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But a lot of people report it that way. Okay, fair enough. So what are your favorite ways to add value to self-storage? I know you've kind of covered it already, but can you just go into it a little bit more in depth? Like I've heard you talk about the spread as well. Yep. So I do a few things and, you know, I I really kind of walk through it. This is hard because you're talking about underwriting. But in the book, I kind of break it down into pictures so you can kind of see and do the walkthrough. But I have what I call money on the table. And this is things that are generally missed through operations. This is rate rates that are not aligned with the market. This is revenue management. This is dynamic pricing. This is products and offerings. Those five things are generally what I'm looking for. And so if I go in and see a facility that has static rates, meaning they're all priced the same, they're below market, they're 100% full, they're not offering insurance, they're not offering sales of any products, and They're not doing any kind of revenue management, looking at how to maximize the revenue in that facility. And the facility is a decent facility on a decent location. That's generally a great buy as long as I can confirm where the spread is. So now I know my baseline. Then I can go into the marketplace and I can see other facilities that are at higher prices. So what's the spread? 
that are doing dynamic pricing, that are revenue management, what they're offering for products and stuff, that I can build that in. And then what's left over is my return and how much money I'll make. So what exactly is the spread? I look for a 20% after I get myself one year to clean it up. And I'm looking for a 20% after that. And then I want to refi after year three and get 100% of my money back. So the spread is basically where the asset is now and what you can get it to. Yes, what I will get it to through change of operations. Yeah, that's awesome. So, mate, how do you actually find these deals now? Do you just have deals coming to you from like wholesalers or how do you actually find deals? So that's a, a three-pronged approach. I've never bought an on-market deal. That doesn't mean you can't. I've just never done it. That's generally not where I look for my deals, so I'm not piped into that. I deal with brokers that bring me off-market deals. So I buy it. 50% has come from that, and the other 50% is me networking, me doing things like why I'm on the podcast, right? More people get to know me. They understand what I want. And if they find a deal, they call me, right? I, it's the whole reason I wrote my book. And literally when I wrote the book, it was like, I'm going to teach you exactly how to invest in self-storage. And now you know exactly what I like. And people are like, Hey, I read your book. I think I found an asset that's perfect for how you invest and what you're doing. Do you want to team up with me on it? And I'm like, great. Sounds good. So it's a win-win for everybody. So I try to network and I try to get out there and I try to tell people what I want. And I am surprised at how many people either don't want to say or they're worried about competition or I don't know what, but I am out there telling everybody exactly what I want. So that way, if those deals hit the market, somebody will bring them to me. So I have an analogy and it's the fisherman and the grizzly bear. I'm from Idaho. I talk about grizzly bears a lot. So um, the fisherman's on the side of the river, right? And he's out there fishing and he's hoping that a fish is going to go by. He's hoping he's using the right fly that they're going to bite. And he's hoping that it's the right time of day on and on and on. The grizzly bear walks out to the middle of the river, sits on a waterfall, plumps down and fish jump into his mouth. The difference between the grizzly bear and the fish is that the grizzly bear is in the path of opportunity. Opportunities coming to him. Yeah, he's got a bite and he's got to get out there and get into the river and get in the path. But essentially, he's not hoping and dreaming. He's sitting there waiting. And that's a large part of my strategy. I'm trying to get myself in the path of opportunity. Yeah, I love that. That's awesome. Mate, so how has uh, self storage actually responded during COVID 19? So, in markets that were overbuilt, it was hit fairly hard. Revenue, we're not down. But we got hit hard from the standpoint that we couldn't raise rate increases. We couldn't kick people out. And for us, COVID-19 was more of a timing, right? So spring is our busy season and that evaporated. So, but once again, with that said, I, I don't want to complain anything else like that because revenue, we're not really down. So it's, yeah, I'm not as high as I want. Yes, I'm worried that during the fall, we'll see a drop. Occupancy is a little lower. So where normally we'd have that busy season and we'd pop up a little more, we haven't had that boost. Defaults rose a little, but nothing terrible, mainly though just because we weren't allowed by the government to collect or charge late payments or kick people out. So we had no means or method or ability to make sure that we collected on debts. So that's where we got hit the most. Okay, so does that mean that you had to kind of put your dynamic pricing on hold? 100%, yes. We paused. We couldn't give rate increases at all, nothing. Can you explain how you work your dynamic pricing? Yes, so it's a multi-tiered system that I look at the marketplace, our facility, location, and tenant. And I'm looking at demand based upon unit size. 
not only in my facility, but in the marketplace, every single person that comes in has their own rate increase schedule and they are all paying different rates, just like happens when you're on an airplane. When you're sitting on an airplane, everybody's paying a different price. That's how our facility works. So some people, which is logical, right? Some people, they want a 10 by 10 more than other people. So they're gonna pay a higher price. Well, I run a business. If you wanna pay a higher price, great. Pay the higher price, right? And then I'm gonna give you first choice to get that 10 by 10. So we're trying to maximize our revenue through dynamic pricing and that pricing has changed. It's not static, it's always changing. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting model and it's, it is so obvious that on a plane that that actually happens, but you never, I never really thought of it like that. Yeah, so it, it works very well and it's a huge differentiator for operators that are really successful or not. If someone was just starting out and wanted to get into self-storage, where should they start and what should they expect? So I think that there's a couple things that you need to know and start in self-storage. I would tell people if you don't have real estate or a lot of real estate experience, start small, right? Look at where you can compete. So look in the marketplace and see where you can make a difference, right? See where the other operators are not doing things. And this is not complicated. I don't want you to think, oh, I can't compete or anything. Do they have a website? Well, maybe you could make a website. Maybe you could pay someone to make a website, right? Simple stuff. But I'd start looking at small facilities that big operators, once again, I'm not gonna touch something that's you know, 50,000 or under square feet. It's not worth my time. So there's a huge marketplace for smaller facilities that people aren't buying. And they're mom and pop owners. And this is what I tell you to do. Identify ones that are good locations and markets that you like or maybe close to home, and then Contact the owners and get to know them. Don't contact them and say, will you sell me your facility? Get to know them. Build a relationship and see if there's an opportunity or if they can show you how. And then you can start getting connected. I connect with your local chapters. We have ISS and SSA, which are associations, and they know lots of owners in those marketplaces. And so I would do a lot more groundwork. I wouldn't look on LoopNet and say, oh, there's nothing to buy. That's absolutely the wrong approach. So hit the ground. Do work, knock doors, call, build relationships, start networking, and don't expect to get something in 30 days. If you do, awesome. But while you're doing this and while you're building relationships and getting to know people, get educated. Figure out what you need to do, how to operate this, what the differences are, right? And how you can maximize those facilities and then start playing with numbers on different ones you're looking at. And then you can start to play with underwriting and valuation and start building right? Start building your own experience, your network, and start trying to be that grizzly bear where people know what you're doing and what you like and what you want to buy and that you have contacts and people to call and things like that. And so one day, an opportunity, someone gives you a call or you see something, or right? You need to create your opportunities. Don't don't just sit around and wait. Yeah, I see a, a huge opportunity in Australia for this because I know quite a few people that own self-storage but they don't actually manage the operations. They either rent the operation out or what actually is more common is they get the real estate agent, and in American terms, that's the broker, to actually manage the incoming and outgoing tenants. So there's really no operation you know, procedures or anything like that. It's just they probably just ring up or walk in and say, hey, can I get some space? So there's a really big opportunity in Australia for this. Yeah, and two, those are the best ones to find and or buy 
when somebody is operating it that really isn't in storage, right, that really has nothing to do with it, then they're not operating it like an owner would. They're not operating it in a way that is conducive. And there's usually always money left on the table for that. What's next for you, mate? Do you have any wildly important goals or targets? I know you kind of mentioned it before, but can you go into that a little bit further? Absolutely. So after the first half of the year, after COVID stuff, I really wanted to put my book out. There's a lot of misinformation about storage. Storage has gone through a revolution and a lot of people putting out content, they haven't even gone through it. So they're setting up people and they're giving hints of stuff that you're like, this is, we don't operate like that anymore. And you're literally telling people to do something that's not applicable in today's age. So I really wanted to get a framework out there that didn't exist that I wish would have existed with me. And that's been crazy. We are the top selling, it's the top selling self-storage book in the world, and we're not even a full month out. So there's a huge demand for it. So with that, I can kind of grow my expertise. And so from there, I started everything from my inner circle to create deal flow. Out of that alone, I'm doing a $6 million deal that we got this month with the guy in it. So I'm trying to, as I'm trying to move over and put myself in the river, I only can do that by adding value to other people. So I'm trying to tell people as much as I can about the industry, the opportunities. I'm trying to help people as much as I can in it. And so we can capitalize on deal flow. So we can see an increase and we can expand our portfolio. And this time we're doing it with investors and partners. So that's really the next stage. And I'm setting up a a framework to scale off of. I'm really trying to close four deals this year by the end of this year. And then from there, 10 next year. So I want to add on almost another, in the next 12 months, another $50 million of assets. Yeah, nice. So you've mentioned the book and you can read this book as an absolute beginner and it'll teach you exactly what to do and how basically to get into your position. Is that right? It's exactly right. I literally just walked through how we did it, what we do, what we do today. But it's not just how to buy, it's how to underwrite, it's how to value, it's how to find connections to make. It's it's literally beginner, you don't know anything about storage, here's what storage is, here's why you should be in it, now let's get to work. Man, it is a playbook, as I like to call it, and it's our complete model that we use. And we give checklists, everything in it, I just kind of was like, I'm putting everything in here. So somebody could pick it up and use it as a framework to you know, create passive income or to build an empire whichever one they want. Yeah, that's awesome. That's going to be a great resource for a lot of people in Australia and the world. Mate, so apart from your book, what's one resource that you would recommend on investing in commercial property? So if you're talking about self-storage, I love ISS and SSA. Those are our associations. They offer tons of information. There's no funnel you're going to get into, a high-selling, you know, coaching thing at the end of it stuff, which I don't like that stuff, but don't do that stuff. And so they're made purely for the people. They ask me to speak a lot at their conventions. I'm a keynote speaker at them. They're the biggest in the world in self-storage. Other than that, commercial real estate, when you're looking at it, I I have a friend that wrote Crushing It in Multifamily. Brian uh, Murphy. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So Brian, I love him. He's a great guy. I love that book, and I know him, so reading through and seeing what he's done and everything, it's very much my experience, too. We kind of followed the same route, right? Like, I did it myself, and I've been building everything from it, So, and I like business books. So anything by Warren Buffett that talks about capital allocation, you should be reading. 
That's all real estate investing is. It's capital allocation and capital management. The better you are at that, the more successful and the bigger you can become. Yes, yeah, great advice. Crushing in an apartment in commercial property. That, that's yes. a really good book. That's a really, yes. really good one. Awesome. And he's a great guy. So once again, there's no back-end funnel that he's selling a coaching program. He just gives it all. It's, listen, here's how it is. Knowing him personally, too, I know a lot of these guys that write these books. I'm very, you know, kind of in that world. And it's quality stuff. Yeah, that's right. Awesome, mate. Well, it's been amazing having you on the show. Where can the listeners go to find out more about you and purchase your book? So you can purchase my book on Amazon. It's the blue one, Growing Wealth and Self-Storage. There's one, I think, with a similar title. It has the most reviews. And you can go to Self-Storage Income. That's the website, which has my book. You can buy it on there too, selfstorageincome.com. And Instagram, AJ Osborne. I'm posting all our stuff, my podcasts. We have the largest self-storage podcast in the world. That's also self-storage income. So yeah, go to iTunes or wherever you go to get the podcast. It's on there. And we've been doing that for a long time and it's exploded. It's, I mean, it's, it's bigger than all the other podcasts combined. It's, it's really kind of blown me away how many people are interested in self-storage. I didn't realize there was that many nerds. There's not as many, like, <laughs> not a lot of people like me out there, I thought. There's no way there can be people this boring, but we all love it, so that's great. I've been really excited about that. So, And on the podcast, same thing. We just go in-depth on a lot of the stuff, managing, finding opportunities, self-storage 101, on and on. Fantastic, mate. My guest today has been the king of American self-storage, AJ Osborne. Thanks, mate. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it. Alright, alright, that brings us to our newest segment to the show, and that segment is called Ripper Resource. In this segment, I'm going to share some resources that I have personally used, read, or listened to that have made a big difference in my life, and I think they deserve to be shared. All right, so this week's Ripper resource is The Four Disciplines of Execution by Chris McChesney, Jim Hulling, and Sean Covey. This is a really, really good book. It's all about goal setting. They talk about your wildly important goal. They call it a wig. It's something that I've implemented into my life. They talk about how you actually measure your goals with the lag measure and the lead measure. Your lag measure is something that you're actually measuring the goal on that's in past tense. And the lead measure is something that you can usually do every day. It's the actions that you can take every day to get you to your lag measure, which is ultimately your wildly important goal, your wig. I've got my scoreboard on the fridge. I write it down every single day, the things that I'm trying to do with my business. And it's just a really, really good way of keeping yourself accountable and it's really, really helped me. So I thought I'd put it out there. And it's this week's Ripper Resource. All right, you know what that music means. That means it's the end of the show. I want to thank AJ Osborne. He is an absolute world-class investor. I hope you guys have learned a lot. I know I have. I'm probably going to listen to this one a couple of times just to make sure it sinks in. I need to thank Kevin McLeod for the music. 
And remember, in the words of Grant Cardone, pay the price today so you can pay any price tomorrow. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Developer Life production.